Hello and welcome to episode number 42. I'm fine, thank you for asking. Today will be the weirdest episode yet you've been exposed to, dear listener, but strangely the topic I know most about yet coincidentally happens to be my least favourite subject. Um, But before we tell you what that is, my two favourite people, well, Emma is my favourite person in the fitness industry, and I'm totally biased, I can say that. How are you? (laughs) I'm buzzing! Um... I'm fine, but that was a very big pop, uh, compliment. Come on. I can't even speak because I'm so excited by the compliment. <laughs> Emma's tongue-tied because she's so excited. That someone said something nice to her. And also, my other favourite person, who happens to be my, my most favourite GP ever, Mr Michael Banner. Oh, hello. I am also fine. And I was expecting you to say something nice because you just said something nice to Emma, so it would have been really helpful. Well, no, that that would have been even more. How are you? you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm fine. Yeah, so... So what is the the topic that we're talking about today? Well, I don't really know. I feel like the, the listeners would probably benefit from an explanation because I don't quite understand the theme. Um... So, okay, yeah. basically, it's so basically, the Dan it was, it, it was only oh, a matter of time. Oh, we just fucking totally over each other. It was... <laughs> I just... I didn't hear anything. I was really impressed by the name Dancast. Yeah. I was just going to say that it's just... It was only a matter of time before Dan insisted that we did a podcast episode <laughs> all about Make it, it about me, goddammit. No, it's a strange one. Um, but the, the other two felt they wanted to do this, and I don't really know why, but let's do it. But that means at some point we're going to have to dedicate episodes to you too. It's only right. Oh, well, if okay. you insist. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Well, I will start kicking off then because I have prepared I have no a few idea questions. What you are asking. I, um, basically, we wanted to do a podcast about Dan called the Dancast um, because we felt a little bit like. We often have guests on our podcast and we often talk to them about their histories in the industry and what they've been up to and um, telling their stories. And we realise that we've never really done that that much with ourselves. Like We often talk about ourselves during the podcast, but I realise that our listeners may not know an awful lot about Dan. Do they want to, though? And... Well, if they don't, we'll find out. In the <laughs> oh, God, that'll be awkward. Then... Oh, no, this will be like a thing <laughs> when we'll we both just... do our own ones and who who's ever done better. <laughs> oh, it's a new competition. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have to set like competitions of like everyone who listens to the podcast gets um, free like, ice cream or something. Wait, no, I didn't say that. I'm not giving away my secrets. Oh. <laughs> it's on. Um, so I just thought we would have a chat about Dan... Uh, a to Dan rather than about him because it would be rude if Emma and I just had a discussion about Dan. Um, so the first question that I wanted to ask you, Dan, is can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the fitness industry? What was your origin story? My origin story? If, if this was an X-Men film. See, you've already ticked tick my superhero box there. My origin story is I was never a sporty child um, and arguably that can be down to nature versus nurture. I have a Mediterranean background, so... If there are any meds out there, you know, we eat, we're happy, we eat, we're sad, we eat, we get together, we just generally eat. And I did a lot of that and very little uh, physical activity growing up. Um, And then quite a significant point around my mid-teens, kind of faced a little bit of ridicule along the way 
and feelings of low self-esteem, low self-worth associated with being a bit heavier. And I went to my GP, Mike, you'll like this one. I have referred to this story before. And um, a long story short, the GP told me I was fat and I needed to lose weight. And that was quite a significant moment in my life. Um, and I kind of realised a lot of that was down to not being very educated in terms of health, nutrition and everything around it. I was at, at a certain point in my life as well where I, I could have gone down a path where I was a little bit more of a rascal or chose to ostracise myself from the group I was kind of hanging around with and make some real positive lifestyle change. And I moved I moved myself away from that group, uh, went to college, decided to get into health and fitness in a big way, took a lot of time out of myself, got quite heavily involved in Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at that time which is kind of where my passion for sports performance evolved, because if anyone has been involved in either of those sports, you'll soon realise it's a case of sink or swim, um, and I was constantly paired with bigger, stronger people, uh, and after a period of losing some weight, I realised I wanted to get fitter, stronger, faster, and everything all entailed, and I went to university to study sport. That was a long time ago. I don't know how much of that is rambling on how much you want to know further from that i wanted to know all of it thank you but i want to know more about your um group of rascals that you used to hang out with <laughs> my group of rascals they weren't really rascals it's just they weren't very invested in health nutrition and everything that i'm invested in now oh okay do you know what is interesting is that i guess there's so much around now about not quote unquote shaming people into losing weight or you, you wouldn't expect maybe your, your doctor to say do you know what you're fat you need to lose weight in, in those absolute terms but actually it sounds like for you at the time that was maybe what you needed to hear and actually obviously everyone would respond to that in a different way but you responded to it in a very positive way yeah I, I think that for a lot of people that that desire to change comes a lot of the time from inspiration or desperation and hearing that f- through you know a highly credible source I guess someone you associate a lot of respect from their opinion, hearing that at that time in my life, that was like, whoa, now I've got to do something about this because this isn't just a bit of ridicule, this isn't a bit of bullying in the playground. This is someone who does have my best health um, and interest at heart telling me I need to do something about it. Yeah, I think that's an important point that people forget when there's the whole sort of fat-shaming thing thrown around is that, at least and we hope that it would be but when it comes from a GP or something they have your best interest at heart do you know what I worry about a little bit sometimes I worry because we publicise this idea of of shame so much that people are very sensitive to shame and then because everyone's being constantly warned that everyone's trying to shame them then as soon as you might say something critical to somebody that isn't intended in any sort of shaming way that isn't intended to shame them at all and that shouldn't shame them because it's it is sort of something that is, um, you know, just a, you know, a fact or whatever. What, what you're trying to say, Mike, is that you are not fat. You simply have fat. Yeah. And all fat is, is an excess store of energy. Exactly. But if you want to lose, you can use. Exactly. And uh, that's what I love about you, Emma, is that Emma has a very rational, rational mind. But at that time... That wasn't a rational discussion I could probably could have had. And I, I can relate to that to a certain degree with people now because people know that, but it doesn't stop those feelings of low self-esteem being associated oh, yeah, with absolutely. the amount of adiposity they have. Um, yeah, so that, that's an interesting it's one. It's much easier said than 
um, internalized. Yeah, yeah. And as much as you uh, as much as you can have that ra- rational discussion in your mind, it's it's still one that doesn't quite register at certain points. So yeah, that that's that's where that's what sparked my interest um, and some big lifestyle change. So after university, so you studied sports science. Sports studies, actually. So sports had studies. An, sorry element of uh, marketing then, coaching in there and everything else oh okay and then after that did you go straight into being a personal trainer i was a personal trainer at the time so my, my time at university i did my level two in my first year and i did all the rubbish jobs associated with that health emotes oh my god me too it's almost a rite of passage that i feel has been missed it has i mean you have to spend three years cleaning machines yes yeah. i didn't do that <laughs> well well, my, part of my level two at the time was 100 voluntary hours, so you didn't even get paid for that as a level two. Um, but there, I had a really interest in strength and conditioning, so I did some voluntary work with the, the University Strength and Conditioning Department. I did a little bit with the EIS, the English Institute of Sport, um, and then that evolved into personal training. I was originally going to do my master's after university, and an opportunity came up at Saracens Rugby Club which was just offset from my university at the time. And I did an internship in strength and conditioning. And again, they were some of the menial, <laughs> most menial, horrible jobs ever. Um, and I, met, I, I, I always use this example, testing the player's urine for how hydrated they were. And it was a real bit of banter at the time, but peeing on the bottles were quite, was kind of a cool idea to them. Uh, I grew rhino skin that year because if, if you show any weakness in a rugby club, anyone that plays rugby will know this. They will devour you. Um, so yeah, I just my aim at university was to get as much experience as possible. So I also did my UKCA, um, but these all sound like humble brags, which they're not. But my my interest in strength and conditioning came from that, and I had aspirations on being a full time S and C coach, working with athletes full time. I think most people do when they're doing a bit of personal training. We did a little bit of S and C work with the test crowd. Sorry, Emma. And. Sorry, I was just going to ask, like, what, because I, you know, it's actually quite a similar story to me. And I remember thinking, yep, yeah, definitely want to be a strength and conditioning coach. Like, and now, no offence to strength and conditioning coaches out there, because some of them are absolutely amazing. But I found it, when I did, like, internships, really quite boring, because it tends to be the same stuff again and again and again and again. It's a bit of an old boys club. It is. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, and again, you know, we're not all in it for the money, but it's very much a profession that you have to be prepared to travel the length and the breadth of the country, working all hours under the sun and not necessarily getting thanks or what you'd hope to be paid for it as well. And a lot of free, um, like I don't know many people that have got a sort of full-time strength conditioning job without doing like serious amount of free hours and shadowing and internships. Yeah, it's, um, it's incredible. If you look at the UKCA website now, they're literally looking for people with PhD level of experience What? Uh, to work for free. So you basically, people, you need a PhD and to be living at home with your parents <laughs> <laughs> to, to work, hopefully end up getting a job. Now, that, that sounds really blase. I'm sure that's not the case. I just found that was very much my experience of it. I think a lot of it, like a lot of things in many industries, is kind of who you know as well, is that if you've put in the time, done an internship with them, you already know like how they like to coach then you might get an assistant role and then from that you can move up type thing yeah yeah i think so um so i would like to ask 
when you did when you know at that beginning when you were getting into the fitness industry can you describe what your view of the fitness industry was how did you see it as a as a concept it was very very different I, I guess it's because Emily, you, Emily, you might have experienced similar. Is my first experience. I was also there. <laughs> uh, it was. I, I came, I guess, from a more academic background. It was, as in, it wasn't a lot of the equivalents at the time. They were more exposed to. This is going to sound awful, and I am going to mention names because I don't care. The Paul Checks and the Charles Poliquin at the time in an echo chamber where not many were really getting their voices heard, and it didn't necessarily need to be peer-reviewed research. Uh, generally, those few voices could say what they like, and people would lap that up like gospel. Whereas my, I, I came from quite an academic background in that it had to be from peer-reviewed journals, and I see the negatives of that as well, is because some of that practically applied didn't necessarily apply at the time and my experiences with the voluntary work I did so I'd come across some really highly educated obviously very academic people but just had no skills when it came to coaching they had no ability to communicate their message with their athletes well I think the other thing with um sports science research especially and especially what comes to training is that I often find that the training methods or the research is like behind the training methods in in terms of the timeline so it might be like oh we've always done i don't know interval training let's go back and see the mechanisms as to why that actually works and why it gets these results as opposed to let's try uh interval training oh we've got these results that show it should do x y and z and now let's implement that into training it tends to be almost backwards so a lot of it has come from experience of working with people and coaching people and coaches that have always got results because of the method that they used but actually often the the research or the quote-unquote the evidence behind that to support it isn't there because you know well one there's not a lot of funding there um you, if you look at most sports science research i guess it's probably better nowadays but and, and that was only what maybe like eight years ago or something i mean the sample size would be like 12 people yeah you've got like there's no real yeah that, that if you've got two people that respond in a slightly different way then it completely skews everything yeah those coaches they're they're often 10 years ahead they've worked out what works and now they're going back as you said they're working out the, me- the mechanisms in, in which they work they know it works already they're just yeah. so much confirmation bias they're doing the studies to confirm what they already know but working out why that works yeah which is really interesting so things like high intensity interval training they're still sort of finding out oh okay well actually this could be really useful for, for example, I don't know, diabetic populations because of the increased insulin sensitivity that it's producing and how little can we do to get that same response. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's been studies that have shown that two bouts of 10 second exercise can get, can give it the response of sort of increased insulin sensitivity that's going to, to the extent that is going to benefit someone in terms of their health. Now, would that benefit them in terms of their weight loss like no of course not to you know 20 seconds of exercise isn't going to do very much but if you can increase their health markers that's really interesting yeah um yeah hmm Hmm. 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 so you mentioned that the fitness industry was very different then yeah i didn't actually specifically answer your question yeah yeah i guess it was once i moved out of that environment i actually worked towards building up my own business is then I was kind of exposed to a lot more. And it was, it was kind of an odd environment in that 
generally, as we see now, fitness, fitness influencers, obviously, and I'm going to sound old now, this was a time before social media, could generally get away with saying what they what they liked. And it was, uh, and, and admittedly, on my, on my, on my front, they, they give you some quite compelling arguments. And I was, I was bought into alkaline, I was bought into talking to rocks and trees. <laughs> I, was, I was bought into a lot of nonsense. And talking it's odd, to rocks and trees? Yeah. That's, um, that's a certain practitioner that still does that, which I won't mention again because I've already mentioned their name. Dan used to be a sponsored athlete as well. Do you remember how big a deal that was? Oh my God, OMG. you're a sponsored athlete. Like, that used to be a really big deal. Now everyone is like, I've got a discount code. Hit me Hit up, me bro. Up. But it used to be like a total thing. Yeah. And that was like prestigious. I guess I, I wanted it for different reasons because I always felt my... My skill was more in educating people rather than, and this is going to, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, I was going to say rather than just, <laughs> just be a poster person. Um, yeah. And I, but yeah, I'll try not to say too much about that. <laughs> but that's what you did. You used your sponsorship status to do talks and to do, yeah, and um, that, yeah, to and do that, blogs and things like that on, on the articles of, the, of your sponsor. Like it wasn't, sorry, on the website of your sponsor, it wasn't you know you didn't just advertise protein did you no and that you know that sounds really blase and um unappreciative it opened up some huge doors for me and it gave me a platform in which i could do q a's and i could reach more people and i'm very thankful for that um but what we yeah i was gonna say that that like did like do you think it opened up a lot of doors for you because i definitely feel that for me it you know as much as maybe i wouldn't do it again or i'm not interested in doing it now i can see what big impact that had on my career oh yeah absolutely i'm not naive enough to believe it had no impact at all it's same as we've we've discussed it a lot of times on on here is we're in a business of aesthetics to a certain degree which mine was always performance moving into aesthetics and it'd be naive to think we hadn't grown some of our following through just as shallow as it sounds how we look uh, and now probably in a better position to offer a little bit more than that hopefully but that's I think that's what marketing is, isn't it? You know, people buy into the the original, you know, the external obvious bits to start with, and then it's what you what you give them afterwards. That is. Do you know what someone uh, once commented to me, which I absolutely love, and this is a bit of a humble brag, but they said I came for the abs and I stayed for the knowledge. That's, <laughs> I was yeah. like, yes. We love you for your brain, Emma. That was what's. But that's what you want, like, and realistically. Yeah you know you are going to get a load of likes on a picture with abs and you're going to get like a bit more attention and it gives you a platform to give out good information you can misuse that platform yeah yeah, yeah exactly but you can use that platform you know like you could post a load of booty pictures and get a huge following from doing that and then start giving out really good information yeah. or mix it in between yeah. like here's my abs here's some information and then they don't even know <laughs> yeah that they're getting educated and, and that as cheesy as it sounds that was pretty much a defining point in my career is when as many body powers as I'd done just turning up when I was actually asked to write and present and do live Q&A's that was a mega deal for me that's that's what I always wanted yeah that was that was a big turning point for me as well I think that you just like and I think when you look at how the fitness industry has changed or maybe more how we have moved through it um, I always think of the body powers and what my different roles were at each of them. Mm. Do you as well? Yeah, I don't. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I guess the back to my, your question, Mike. What 
the fitness industry trains a lot since social media came by. I think we've had many discussions about this, where you can. All right, Grandpa. All right, easy. I'm like that. <laughs> since social media, I'm I mean, middle, we're exactly the same. I'm a middle child. <laughs> I'm Linda's age, by the way. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you've been around a, a fair old while as well, Emma. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I said that. No, I just <laughs> turned it on me. Yeah, but uh, we have many lessons to teach. No, that, we, we don't. So tell us how. Uh, tell us how the the industry has changed since you got into it. There's a lot more bickering. There's a lot more arguing. There's a lot more people that have to assert themselves. It was very much a community that I think everyone wanted to help everyone more so. It's, it seems less about that. I'll, I'll say that it's coming around more full circle now, but there was definitely a little void in between where it was, if there was an opportunity to disagree with anyone on whatever it was, even if they were had the same values uh, and they were they were educating the same population, they sat on the same page with most things. If there was an opportunity to get one up on someone, that's I think three years or so ago that that's how it felt. Oh yeah, um, definitely. But now it seems to come a little bit more full circle. Is that? Okay, you still have your, your camps, you still have your tribes, but a lot of people seem to be singing more from the same hymn sheet and for the health of the nation as well, I think. I think it's less about making a quick buck out of people. There were, again, within that void, it was just people making money at any cost. And there was, uh, before the buzzword integrity, there was none. And even I think arguably now. That circle has sort of led to itself. like Because there was that culture of people just wanting to make a quick buck, that call-out culture sort of had to develop because people had to start calling it out and going, look, stop listening to this nonsense. And then that created this environment of bickeriness. And then now that can lead to this new utopia that we see before us. Because everyone gets on now, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the new fitness utopia. Do you remember Fruitopia? But I think as well, you... Sorry, do you remember what? the drink, Fruitopia? No. no. It was really good. What I do remember is Umbongo. Do you still have that do in your Do you fridge? remember Um Ognob? Have we spoken about that on the podcast? No. Yeah, so this is a really sad story for me. Because as much as I loved um, Umbongo to the point was it, that I still Was it have, way down deep in the middle of the Congo? No, it was they drink it in the Congo. Oh, okay, sorry. But I like the embellishment. <laughs> sorry. But the, um, they, I still have a carton of Umbongo, my lucky Umbongo in my fridge. It's a long story. But... In about 2001, sort of 2000, 2001, they invented a drink called Um Ognob, which was like a remix of Umbongo. And it was an alternative flavour. It was like banana and grapefruit and orange and stuff like um, And I remember my flatmate at the time had loads of, or had this carton of Um, bong, of um Ognob and brought it to our flat. And it looked amazing and it smelt amazing, but she would only let me smell it. She wouldn't let me try any of it. And so I never got to try any because like, I could never find it anywhere. And then it got discontinued and I never found it. I feel a bit weird about a banana flavoured drink that's like not for I feel weird about drinking or sniffing anything that's got knob in the title, I'll be honest. Okay, well, I think that it's just important to recognise that different flavours have potential different opportunities and that sometimes we want to try them. <laughs> wow, wow. Sorry, I, 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 I apologise. That's fine. Um, back to you, Dan. Because we can't, we can't spend Dan. the whole time talking about um, fruity drinks. Um, how have you changed in the fitness industry? I've changed 
how have I changed? I like to think I've I've just a case of finding out the hard way. Just just learnt to be teachable and adapt because you do experience in this line of work people from different backgrounds, from different walks of life, have different experiences. You've got to find common ground with a lot of people, and that that comes from a point of learning as well. Even the people arguably less experienced from you, there's lessons to be learned from everyone. So I think that, and not that I ever I ever think I had a huge ego in, in the early days, but I'm going back 14 years now. There probably does come a point, I think, for everyone, especially if you come from a, more of an academic background, is that you think you know a lot, but actually the further you get through your career, you realise how little you know and how many learning opportunities there are. So that, that, that I think, is my, my biggest lesson. And experience, experience, experience is, you know, you learn something new every day. This is a good place to put in a Shakespeare quote, which is, the fool doth know he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Yes. Oh, that's I actually like that. really clever. Yeah. Well is. done, Shakespeare. I know. Quite a good guy, right? Yeah, yeah quite good. Um, so throwing a, a cheesy Socrates one. Go on, then. I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is I know nothing. Mm. Huh. No more but of that. it's a bit like... I'm going to save that for an Instagram caption. I'm not really. <laughs> I'm then going to quote Joss Stone and say, I've got a right to be wrong, so just leave me alone. <laughs> That's probably a, bit more, a lot more apt for the fitness industry. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Yeah. Okay. Who'd have thought that Joss Stone would provide, provide us with a profound quote? And she would have been quite young at the time of that song as well. So, what, 16? Yeah. No, that was her second album. Oh. I don't Did actually know if she, she wrote that herself? song. Mm. She, I don't know that she wrote her own songs, actually, Just Stone. Where is, where is she? Oh, gosh, Who Just Stone. Is had a, she? She, had a, she had a complicated a complicated story, didn't she? Because she went off to America for a while, and then she came back and presented an award at the Brit Awards with an American accent. And I she got this. absolutely ridiculed by everybody. Everyone hated her. Where like, was I during this? I don't know. You, you were probably five, Emma. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone was so upset and just, you know, just didn't like her anymore. And then she released another album and no one bought it. Uh, what, all because of her accent? Yeah, yeah. lesson learned. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't sell don't, out to an yeah. American. Exactly. Don't change your accent. I think she was oft criticised, wasn't she, that Joss Stone? Because she was quite... She was very talented for her age, and it was like she became too famous too young. Uh, one of those. Speak, on a slight tangent, speaking of... I mean, you mentioned... Umbundo a tangent, was, you say? That would be very unusual <laughs> for this podcast. You mentioned that um, they ruined Umbungo, and you know how some things should be left alone? I recently found out they're remaking Home Alone. Yeah, I, I heard that, that as well. No, just leave it alone. Did you like, see Macaulay Culkin's response to that? No, I haven't. He posted they... a picture of what Home Alone would look like today, and it was him, like just sitting on a sofa, slobbing out with like a takeaway on his belly. <laughs> it's really <laughs> funny. Yeah, it's a classic. Just leave it alone, like on Bungo. They because won't when... leave it alone though. They're remaking quite a few things. It's the new. Disney well, they just did the Lion King, didn't they? I know. Has anyone seen it? No. Yeah. No. I saw Horrible Histories. That was good. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, back um, to the topic at hand. K 
can you tell us, Dan, how you got into competing? Yeah, I can. Um, arguably, I think this is this is where you can arguably think of that pressure I had at a younger age to lose that body weight. Perhaps gave me at that point in my life some warped perceptions of how my body looked. Mm-hmm. So with all that weight loss came a little bit of a, an exercise addiction in there somewhere. So my efforts to get involved in competing, which you know, if, if I'm being properly honest with myself and everyone else, as more of a participant, I was, I, I did okay at my first competition, but I was never fully invested in bodybuilding. It was all about putting those demons of being an overweight child to rest. But arguably at that time, I probably ended up with a few more demons around food, which is what which prompted me to uh, to learn more about food, which is why I did a postgrad in sport and exercise nutrition. Um, to kind of reassess my, my own relationship with food. And I, I do fully believe that I think anyone that gets involved in physique sport, whether it's for a positive way or a negative way, your relationship with food will never be the same. And so do you feel that studying um, the postgrad helped your relationship with food? I think so, yeah. Understanding the mechanisms a little bit more behind what was happening uh, on a, a physiological level, but it, it didn't address too much the psychological level. That's just come through self-education along the way and listening to certain people. But that took a long time to to kind of heal. And I, I took a long period out of competing. And I still, was, that's air quotations there, listeners, because I, I still, I don't think I ever really competed. It was all about proving a point to myself, which is why when everyone, anyone approaches me now, it's, uh, perhaps my own personal experience has shaped that a little bit. But it's always making sure people are aware of everything that's involved in that and the potential pitfalls after it and actually now with the population I work with I'd much rather refer on because there are much there are many more people just much better at that job than me I'd, I'd rather not it, and I don't know whether you find this it's sometimes almost like a, a moral dilemma in which we're in the business of health but aesthetics at, in that position there's nothing healthy about that so when you do get to that point and someone's at their leanest and they're getting they're crossing that line where it's no longer about health is um from a coaching perspective you want everything you want to do is just tell them not to do it that this is just my my personal opinion of course yeah i i always refer on with um competition prep for for a number of reasons one because it's not my area of expertise and there are better people that can do it um, and I don't know how to pose. To be quite honest, I don't care what bikini you're going to wear. I don't know what yeah. federation you should compete in. I don't know what the judges are looking for. It, you know, I can get you lean, but the rest of it doesn't interest me. Um, and it's also just so like it's such a sort of fickle pursuit. Like you know, and I just don't. Yeah. I don't think it is. And maybe it does make some people happy, but I just don't think that for most mm. people it does or is a good goal. And it never did me, and I, I think that I've been quite honest with that, in that, you know, it was about putting those other demons to rest, but at that point in my life, I had other things going on, and when I look at the control variables that were there, I was all of a sudden in this environment around people that just encouraged this disordered eating, you know, living out of Tupperware, counting calories, to the point where you're taking a couple of grains of rice out before you cook it, you're weighing protein powder, and I guess, it, it, you know, each their own that's not that's not me drawing judgment on anyone else but for me personally at that time I was looking for something that wasn't there mm. and I was looking for happiness in in my appearance which I've seen since learned there is no happiness in that 
And what did you replace it with? Because obviously I was going to ask you if you're going to compete again, if you think Never. you're competing again, but I think we know the answer to that from you what you just said. just in but... the off-season. Come on. Bulking, bulking bro. So what, what came next? What did, you, what did you replace it with, if anything? I became more interested in performance, you know, getting better and looking at other, other health, other variables uh, aside of body fat, which is... Um, I found my my place, I guess, in that in the industry. I feel more, I'm better suited to helping other people, and serving other people than serving myself. Which is, you know, with with physique, sport can be a bit of a, a selfish pursuit. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's there's lots of other variables in my life that make me much happier than that. That just doesn't align with my own personal values, wants, or desires anymore. Yeah. So that's just not for me. Do you know what? I'm just trying to think now of an argument to compete. Because just what you've just said is like, so, and I just think anyone listening is going to be like, oh, yeah, like, why would I compete? So I'm just trying to think, and I actually can't think of like a counterpoint to that. Like, oh, yeah, but oh, what? That's, not, that's not me trying to sway anyone, by the no, way. No, I know, that's just, it's, that's just your personal opinion. But having listened to that, you're like, well, yeah, like, what really would be the benefit? And I get that people like having that end goal which mm. is something that you utilise now with doing like a photo shoot that doesn't, it doesn't need to be stepping on stage. It doesn't need to be going to that next level of extreme. Yeah. I, I think that's uh, probably because my, my own personal experiences, I feel that not, not as a humble brag, but I can better recognise that in people now. So when I talk to someone about their training and nutrition, they, they talk about control variables and what training means to them. Some of the time there's alarm bells going in that, it's not really competing they're interested in, that they're, they're pursuing something else, but without being a fixer, um, it's not telling them that, it's helping them realise that, or, or referring them on to someone who's better suited to helping them. Yeah, because the thing is, like you refer them, you almost know that down the line they're going to come back and be like, oh yeah, I competed, and well, you were right, type thing. But it sometimes is something that you need to learn yourself. Yeah, like often, unfortunately, you kind of need to go too far to then realize, oh, I went too far. Yeah, bring it back in. But it's really hard to teach someone that, like, oh, please learn from my experience. Yeah, I don't know if you can. Mm, No, I don't. I don't don't think you can. And I think with physique sport, there's there's often something a little bit internal because it's it's an it's an odd sport. Um, There's something internal there that isn't. I mean, if you're trying to get into physique sport for external reward that you just won't find it and it arguably any, any competition you do is going to be way more expensive personally and financially more than you, you would have thought possible because you're sacrificing time with loved ones in between times away doing social stuff and uh, sorry i sound really negative about it i'm just this is dear listener this is based on my own personal experiences yeah, yeah. yeah and some people get a hell of a lot out of competing just to put yeah. it just to put it in yeah. there but i think one thing that um, you've kind of touched on there is that for personal trainers especially I think people say oh do you know what if I compete that will boost my business or you know yeah. that that means that I don't know maybe they think it's going to open up a new thing where they could potentially prep other people or that their clients would be impressed by that or I don't know various reasons but I always think it actually hugely affects your business because if you're doing it to any kind of you know if you want to do it to the best and if you're going to do it bloody do it right like yeah. that's sort of my approach to most things if you're gonna do it like do it all in it, that it is gonna affect your business 
because it, it as you said it was it was it became such a huge part of my identity and at that at that time it was like fitness was only really a I say fitness. Fitness shows were only really emerging. Bodybuilding had always been around, but these easily accessible, without any qualifier, championships and whatnot, I won't mention names of the competition, were just emerging. So it was this huge part of my identity in which business did pick up a little bit at the time, but it would also be the topic of conversation to just about anyone I bumped into. And oh, as when are you next by- competing? How many, yeah, how many days out are you? Exactly. And as a byproduct of that, that is how I, I, I picked up my sponsorship as well. That's what led me to other opportunities. So to let go of that, and I think a lot of personal trainers do, they associate so much of their own capabilities, their own self-worth with how they look. And they, because, you know, it is, it is a little bit of a shallow industry sometimes. People are drawn to those that look better. And we, we all know that, that, you know, a, a six pack doesn't necessarily reflect how much you know. Yeah. But I think what what's interesting, now I'm thinking about it just because you're talking about it, is that almost everyone, I say almost because I'm not included in this, but almost everyone of that era that sort of we started in fitness in competed. Like, that was just what you did. Like, everyone competed. Yeah, it's part of the rite of passage almost, yeah. yeah. It was actually quite strange for, like, someone not to compete that, that would be in that sort of world. Yeah. But you live and you learn, as they say. That you do. They do say that. They do say that. There's just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. I wanted to ask you about, you know, you talk, touched briefly on kind of performance-based um, training and things. Can you tell us about your 24-hour sled push that you did in terms of, obviously you did that for charity, but was there a personal kind of performance-related goal in mind with that as well? Yeah, there was to a certain degree. Um, for anyone that is listening that was unaware of it, that was for the men's charity Calm campaign against living miserably, raising awareness of male suicide. I've been quite open and honest in terms of discussing my own mental health. So it was a hugely personal charity. It was a big bold ask. I'd never really done anything strength endurance. It was kind of counterintuitive to any sort of physiological, strategic way someone would train. So for an endurance event, typically the lighter the load, arguably the that's going to have a knock-on positive effect to performance, but because I was pulling 100 kilos, I, I couldn't let my body weight drop. So it was just a lot to play around in, I guess on a professional level, playing around with my own professional capabilities and juggling my own training that's and my sorry, nutrition. I hadn't even considered that. So you were, like, obviously you needed to be sort of big enough, strong enough, heavy enough, and also like to sort of have the inertia of your body weight to be yeah, heavy enough for that endurance event. Yeah, because I'm not an endurance athlete. I never have been. As soon as I started endurance training, my body weight dropped massively, but that made no sense because the load then was that much greater. So I had to stay heavy, which was quite a challenge because for six-hour training sessions where you're, you're kind of tearing through a lot of calories, then replacing that and managing life in between. It was a huge mental challenge more than anything. You know, the physical challenge, I won't deny that's the hardest thing I've physically done, but mentally, I guess it was... As you said, Mike, it was just something performance related, something I had to go into a little bit naive to. We've had this discussion, especially with what Ross has done, is be, be naive enough to start and stubborn enough to finish in that I had no idea what would be expected of me. To my knowledge, something similar hadn't been done before. So I just had to best juggle it professionally with the knowledge I've, I've accumulated over time. But then from an athletic point of view, it was just... I was concerned I would be robust enough to finish because I did pick up a few injuries along the way. But 
Yeah. Also constantly ill. Yeah, I was, wasn't <laughs> I? Yeah. I'm like a two colds, colds a year kind of guy and I had chest infection, I had the flu, I had a cough for about eight weeks. It was ridiculous. But again, that just that, that was a massive learning thing because I was obviously getting something wrong at the time. But yeah, and I'd like to think that I'd, I'd, I'd much more in the future focus on personal performance related stuff. Mm-hmm. But professionally, it's, um, I definitely see more of a purpose in helping others now. And speaking of that, what is your, can you describe us your typical client and the typical struggles that your clients tend to have? I, I work mainly with general population now on a one-to-one level. Um, I do a small proportion of that offline as well. And I also do some corporate wellness talks. So it's often busy professionals that face the day-to-day constraints that most do, certain barriers that crop up, whether that's, we live in an era where most people are more time constrained than ever. A lot of the time more financially constrained than ever. It's just, and again, it sounds very cheesy, providing solutions to problems that people face day-to-day. You know, we're problem solvers. But that's through, I think, mutually agreeable, descriptive, non-prescriptive solutions which, as with most diets, you know, it's a list of prescriptive instructions, do this, don't do that. That's just not real life. That's not the population I work with. It's different different people with different backgrounds, different challenges, um, and just coming up with some realistic, pr- practical solutions to that. And enhancing their health, obviously. Can we do, it like, a round of, um, you know, like, weird questions people ask that, like, I don't know, like, what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear... It sounds really, this is, oh, let's just go with it because it's a self-indulgent podcast, isn't it? Sorry, listener. Um, without leaving this planet without any legacy at all. But I feel like I've kind of achieved that in that my daughter will be my, my biggest byproduct of what I've done so far. If I can leave something on top of that and helping a few other people, that would be cool as well. But it's the most narcissistic thing ever basically creating a miniature you to leave the world with and your most favorite things about that little thing is everything that reminds you of you (laughs) (laughs) there are more narcissistic things than that but i get what you mean yeah mike what's yours apart from spiders oh i was just gonna say spiders and that yeah nothing else um i'm scared of a lot of stuff a lot of stuff um, but I think probably my biggest fear is not facing my fears. I'm quite, I gen, I'm very, I am a very um, thinky sort of person. So I deliberate about things a lot. I don't make decisions very easily. And I don't, um, I deliberate through a lot of things. And I like to feel very comfortable and competent with doing things before I will, you know, press the button basically. Um, so, I guess my fear is, is is not continuing to try and counteract that, really. Hmm. I think being aware of that is a step already in the right direction, right? Hmm. Mabes. Mabes. I wouldn't and change yours, it. Em? What's my biggest what, fear? What's your biggest fear? Um, I think not reaching my potential. Which, like, oh, it, it, it's one. kind of like, I don't know what that is, but, you know, just thinking, I don't want to settle, like... Yeah. That is a good one. Yeah, that is a good one. What other weird questions like that do you get asked? Like what? My favourite colour is red. Yeah, I can <laughs> see by your watch. Um, What's your what favourite colour, Emma? 
it's blue because I'm wearing a blue top. Yeah, my favourite colour is blue as well. We're all actually wearing our favourite colours. No way. Way though. Way. What weird questions do I get asked? What about what know, would your I... last meal be if you were on death row? I'm a sucker for a good lasagna. Ooh, I would say oven spaghetti, which is like the spaghetti version of lasagna. Oven spaghetti? I'm making you oven spaghetti. This is the, the, literally, it's the best thing in the world. What, so, so is just... it like macaroni like pie, but without macaroni, or like, well, like lasagna? So you basically, you boil spaghetti, lay it down in a tray, put a layer of bolognese sauce, but like meaty bolognese sauce on top of it, then another layer of spaghetti, layer of white sauce on the top, um, and then like breadcrumbs along the top, and then you put it in the oven. So lasagna. It's like lasagna, but not with lasagna. So what's sheets, the benefit spaghetti. of it being spaghetti? It's just like glorious. Just different in it. And funny, also because I I always find that lasagna sheets just don't cook as well as you want them to, and it just you know, you never get a good lasagna. It's always too hot. It always keep it retains the heat too much, so you burn your mouth on it. Like it's such a great idea, but it's poorly executed. <laughs> the intricacies of a decent lasagna. Yeah. What else? Yeah, I think probably the listeners have had enough of me, if I'm honest. Mm, okay. Well, we can can't we... say, yeah, can yeah. we, Dan? Because that would be... Well, well, no, no yeah. I, I am saying, as a statement, I am saying, let's end that there. If they want to ask me more questions, they can. But we'll make uh, the next one about one of you guys, shall we? Well, not the next maybe one, not the next someday. one. That might be a little yeah. bit much for the listener. Well, yeah. Well, if we've we'll got do, any we'll, left after we'll this, we'll revisit yeah. the others soon. Um, thank you very much, Dan, for sharing your story with us. It was very interesting. I really I enjoyed that. You. Yeah, I learned things that I did not know about you, so that's very exciting. I mean, thank I spoke quite a lot, so that wasn't all about Dan, I guess. We'll talk about it. Was, that it was more, it, yeah, it was more than I was comfortable with, <laughs> yeah. but that's fine. What a selfish, selfish girl. <laughs> uh, right, thanks everyone for listening. Um, as always, please do not hesitate to give us nice reviews. Um, subscribe, like, tell all your friends, tag us in your Insta stories, and we will and see al- you next time. And always hesitate to give us bad reviews. Yeah, don't yeah. give us bad reviews because we don't like that. See what? Just write yeah. them down and then. Yeah, just write them down in a little notepad. Them. Maybe in a little way. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks, bye.